Welcome to the 390th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today I speak with Shamir Smith, writer and activist on behalf of Black women in America with long COVID. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 16th, 2021, there are 5,332,651 deaths attributed to COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is 221 homeless people have died in Seattle since last winter, one of the highest numbers on record. This piece appeared November 23rd, 2021. It appeared in the Seattle Times. It was written by Scott Greenstone. Outside St. James Cathedral, rain came down in gouts, spilling down the front steps and inside the vaulted sanctuary. Inside, the only warmth came from 221 candles arranged around the font and the warm organ notes that filled the room as around a hundred voices sang, O a holy city, scene of John. O shame to us who rest content, while lust and greed for gain in street and shop and tenement ring gold from human pain, the mourners sang. 221 candles, one for each homeless person who died on the streets of Seattle over the previous year. The congregation at St. James has gathered each year for more than a decade. No one can remember when it started, but it's continued each year not even interrupted by pandemic restrictions. They mark the names of those who've died without a home in Seattle and King County. It's one of just a few such Catholic services in a country where homeless deaths are rarely counted and even more rarely remembered. At the end of the service, lay people from the congregation read the names of all 221 dead from last November to this one, and the six massive bells at the top of the cathedral's 167-foot towers ring for each name. That's more bells and more candles and more deaths than the, than the cathedral has ever marked. Ten months into the calendar year when this piece was reported, the coronavirus pandemic, drug epidemic, record-breaking heat wave, and customary cold and wet snaps had killed at least 159 homeless people, which is higher than normal. The county medical examiner's office which investigates violent and sudden deaths, doesn't expect 2021 homeless deaths to pass the previous high of 194 in 2018, but they're likely to pass the two years since. While the medical examiners is the most official count of homeless deaths in the county, Lee Thornhill, a public health data and evaluation manager for the public-private health care for the homeless network, cautioned that many homeless people who die in places like hospitals are likely missed by this count and extrapolating too much from a sample size of less than 200 can lead to faulty conclusions. One death outside is one too many, Thornhill said, but it's hard from an analytical, statistical perspective to look at small numbers and make meaning from them. Still, 
there are smaller numbers within that total that tell their own stories. The number of dead outside or in vehicles or garages so far this year is 183. It's creeping dangerously close to 218's total of 107. It hints at the shelter beds the highly contagious coronavirus took from the system by making it impossible to shelter people in large rooms together. With shelters like the Union Gospel Mission cutting their capacity, people who might otherwise be in shelter were forced to find other places to sleep. COVID-19 has claimed more homeless lives this year than it did last year, 28 so far as opposed to 18, as public health and homeless providers have struggled to achieve a sufficient vaccination rate to slow the disease in shelters and housing programs. Since late July, the county has seen a prolonged spike of between 22 and 68 cases a week in shelters, homeless camps, and housing facilities, its most persistent spread since the pandemic began. 71 deaths so far this year are from overdose, a number that Brad Feingood, a strategic advisor for the Public Health Department Seattle, has said <clears throat> is higher in the homeless population than ever before. Most of those involve multiple drugs in the form of op opioids, especially fentanyl and stimulants like methamphetamine. There are a few causes for this rise, Feingood said. Pandemic restrictions shrank treatment programs for substance use disorder, especially for homeless people, at the same time negatively affecting many people's mental health. Feingood said doctors are hearing people have less access to heroin and more access to cheap fentanyl. We need to be able to keep doors open and good quality services around for people, Feingood said. Dr. Nancy Connolly, who lost her favorite patient to overdose earlier this year, said it's horrible to watch her clients try to pull themselves off the street only to find an uncaring system full of barriers to their recovery. It's terrible to me, unconscionable, as they say, that people are discharged from mental health hospitals to the street, from jails to the street, Connolly said. More than the numbers, each name the congregants read out at the Requiem Mass also will tell its own story. Lee Kautz, 66, who died of hypothermia and whose body was found by police next to a dumpster behind an AM-PM last winter, she had no shoes on and she had one arm out of her shirt, possibly because she was in the middle of taking it off when she died, according to the police report. Mohammed Hersey, a mid-30s man who was killed by a blunt force head injury in City Hall Park, according to the medical examiner, Leighton Arnold Jenkins Jr., who could often be seen walking outside the Nordstrom downtown with a blanket wrapped around like a cloak, was found dead in that blanket the day after Thanksgiving last year, according to his brother Lawrence. Lawrence wrote in the South Seattle Emerald that Leighton, who had schizophrenia, was loved and missed by many more than the many hundreds of people who passed by his body at a downtown bus stop the day he died. Others don't have names, unidentified male, unidentified female. Some were infants when they died, for example, baby boy Ray Garcia. We ourselves are not without blame when it comes to what happened to them, said Father Michael Ryan in his address to the congregation, an address that doesn't change greatly each year. May they rest in peace, and may we not rest peacefully until we have made the scandal of homelessness our nation's priority. The article was 221 homeless people have died in Seattle since last winter, one of the highest numbers on record, published in the Seattle Times by Scott Greenstone. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. This is 
one that I've really been looking forward to. And let me introduce my guest to you, Shamir Smith. Shamir L. Smith is a writer and thought leader who has appeared on MSNBC Live with Craig Melvin, The Washington Post, Medium, and on PBS NewsHour. Since June of 2020, she's used her social media platforms, engagement in grassroots COVID-19 support groups, notably Body Politic and BIPOC Women Long COVID Long Hauler Support Group, and her strong media presence to raise awareness about the importance of Black voices in conversations on the prevention, treatment, and research of long COVID in urban communities. In December of 2020, she was a featured patient-led panelist at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases workshop on post-acute COVID. Shamir is an independent member of the Long COVID Alliance and a recently appointed board member of Body Politic. In April of this year, Smith was praised for her heart-wrenching and brazen testimony during a bipartisan congressional hearing on long COVID after becoming the first black woman to detail her long COVID experience. Shamir Smith, it's a pleasure to bring you to COVID Calls and nice to meet you. Thank you so much, Scott. It's, it's an honor to be here. I'm so glad and proud of the work that you all are doing every single day um, to, to, to highlight the education and the information that we all need as it relates to COVID. And I'm excited to talk to you today about long COVID. Thanks for that. And let, let's start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and yeah. what the COVID situation looks like there today. I am calling from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, it's where I've been and spent the, uh, the last 18 years. Um, and um, as I listen to you read the article um, about homelessness, um, I can't help but uh, but to say that, sadly, um, we are experiencing um, the same, if not more of that as a result of, of COVID. Um, uh, recently, um, I just learned as of yesterday that the county in which I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is a, a, a suburban county outside of Washington, D.C., um, has had to close uh, three to four of their schools because um, COVID, uh, the COVID cases are, are growing in number. And I sadly feel like uh, Baltimore will follow suit um, because of uh, some of the statistics that I'm reading about and um, some of my teacher friends are sharing some information. So um, it's not looking great here either. So um, we are still struggling. And what I fear most of all is that uh, there are still uh, uh, thousands and thousands of people, especially uh, underrepresented and marginalized people in Baltimore, Maryland, who either don't know they have long COVID or don't have access to resources to, re to receive information and, and care and treatment and symptom management for long COVID. And so I, I think that um, we have a lot of work to do uh, before we say that we've tackled long COVID and COVID in our city. It's such an important point that as the infection rate goes back up, and I think mm -hmm. we're seeing that, unfortunately, across the United States and, and around the world, not only with Omicron, the new variant we're hearing so much about, but still Delta, yeah. um, that long COVID sufferers will once again be pushed off the front page and out of the frame. And, yeah. you know, uh, one of the disturbing things to me with this disaster is it seems like uh, the United States, the government, the federal government has had trouble focusing even on one thing. Yeah. To ask them to focus on two things doesn't seem to be within the capacity. Um, and so, you know, what you're the kind of issues you've been surfacing are, are so important in this in this regard. Let me let me ask you if I can, if you wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this pandemic period, something that you really associate strongly with this time. 
You know, um, what I remember, um, and, and this happened before I uh, I experienced my first symptoms of COVID, is I remember um, the date specifically was March 17th of 2020. Um, by that time, um, Baltimore City and, this, and the governor of Maryland had decided and made a decision that we were going to uh, we were going to teach virtually. So the students would get laptops, and and we would have to transition our learning um, to to you know virtual classes and experiences. And I remember not so much caring about computers and and and, and lesson plans and classwork. What I cared about was the fact that I taught it in an urban area, right? So I cared about making sure that those students who um, are on the lower income spectrum of, 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 of income, um, make, making sure that they had food, that they had supplies, that they had masks and paper towel and bleach, things like that, because that's the kind of teacher that I was. Um, I always went above and beyond to assure that my students had exactly what they needed in my classroom and outside of my classroom. So I remember racing to about 10 students' homes um, in Baltimore City um, and tiring myself out, making sure that they had those things. And um, it sticks out to me because I was very anxious and very nervous and concerned about those students because these are some students who outside of school lunches and breakfast, we didn't know if they were going to eat. We didn't know how safe they were going to be. And so I wanted to make them feel like they were special and still thought about even though we weren't going to be in an actual physical building. And so I did that on March 17th only five days later to be uh, be struck with my first symptoms of COVID. Teachers are essential workers, period. Mm -hmm. Period. I mean, <laughs> yeah. period. And the, the image of you doing a sort of a teacher EMS where you're driving yes. from student to student house and bringing the things they need. Yes. <laughs> I, I can totally picture it. And yes. I mean, before we turn to COVID, I wonder if you want might reflect a little bit about your time as a teacher. I mean, why did you why did you choose to go into teaching? You know, um, Scott, I always say that I became an accidental teacher. Um, it was not something that I set out to do. It was actually something that I rebelled against. I, I, I went to Morgan State University here in Baltimore and I got my English degree. And, and of course, everyone always says when you get an English degree, you should either write or be a teacher. And I didn't want to do either one of those things. I just wanted to be a makeup artist and, and just kind of fly by the seat of my pants and do what I wanted to do. I called myself like a wild child. And so it, it just so happened that I went to a job fair because the city was having an emergency teacher hiring fair. And um, from the moment that I was interviewed, they were letting me know that they wanted me to be a part of the staff. And so um, I took the job October 2015 and I did not look back since. I did not look back. And, and um, being a teacher truly was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Um, I do believe it was a part of my life's calling. And um, I do believe that I impacted the students, um, all two to 300 of them that I taught over the course of time, um, very much so. So um, I enjoyed what I did. I wasn't one of those kinds of teachers that, that kind of drug my feet. No, I love to teach and I, I still miss it today. As a matter of fact, today I thought, looking through some memories on social media and I said, man, I would give anything to be back in the classroom if I could, because I miss those students. I miss um, the, the ground that we were breaking together. Um, before I left uh, 
before I left, not knowing that I would not return, um, we were teaching, I, I was teaching uh, my eighth grade class about Shakespeare. Actually, they were teaching me. That's how great they were. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was so many things I had left to do with them and to experience with them. And even almost two years later, I have students who text me and um, send me direct messages on Instagram and say, are you coming back to teaching? And sadly, I can't tell them that I can because since March of 2020, I have not been able to to work at all. Well, it's, uh, teaching is a strenuous profession and yes. middle school teaching is like mm -hmm. the Olympics. Of, yes. <laughs> uh, public education or any yes, kind of education is. truly yeah. is. Um, so tell us about your experience with COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, I it was so ironic because the day that I got my first symptoms, I had just gotten off a call with my uh, my therapist, my mental health therapist, and she was walking me through some steps to uh, handle uh, not being so anxious and so panicky about the, the pandemic. Um, and so um, we were talking about those things. And as I disconnected the call, you know, I remember telling my partner at the time um, who I was dating, I said, mm, you know, my throat is like hurting, but it was just, a, you know, a little a little tickle. Um, and then as the day wore on into evening and night, um, I, it, my throat was on fire, you know, and um, I felt extremely tired and um, I, I, I just I just felt so lethargic, too. And I just was thinking, I said, well, it's probably because you just kind of are overwhelmed about, you know, transitioning into the virtual learning. You got so much on your mind. You've been doing a lot lately. And as the week wore on, those small, what they see, it seemed like very small symptoms, very light symptoms, turned into dizziness upon standing. Um, it really felt like somebody was sticking a match down my throat. Um, I developed diarrhea and constipation. <laughs> and um, a couple of days later, I went to the hospital um, because you know, I, 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 well, initially I went to urgent care and I was told that I could not get a test because I didn't have a fever. I didn't have a cough. Um, I didn't have any of those three major symptoms that they were looking for. And I didn't quite believe what they were saying because I remember never feeling like that ever before. And I'm a teacher who had gotten germs from students, but I just felt so sick and so, um, it was, it was hard to describe. And I went to the hospital, told once again, oh, you're fine. And even if you aren't, we can't test you because you don't meet the qualifications. But outside of the of the of the, my triage room, because at that time, Scott, there were so many patients um, that were overwhelming the hospitals right in Baltimore City. Um, I could hear the doctors talking about me and they were saying, well, we don't really know what's going on, but she has a high white blood count. And I thought to myself, I said, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but I know a high bl white blood count means that there's some type of sickness or infection. But they refused to address that when I brought that to their attention. And I didn't want to rock the boat, so I went home. But less than a month later, I lost my vision and my left eye due to uh, an inflamed cataract that, that developed in my eye for five months. Um, I was unable to get out of my bed on most days. Uh, thankfully, my, my rest, my bathroom was close to my room at the time. 
Um, I was not eating. I lost 30 pounds very quickly within the first four weeks of, of illness. Um, I stopped being able to hear. Uh, I wasn't able to comprehend what was being said to me. I wasn't speaking. Um, I experienced moments of psychosis and delirium that I vaguely remember. Um, I was hearing voices. Uh, I was feeling suicidal, um, very much in despair, depressed, uh, uh, and, and intense body pain from my spine to my legs to my arms. I was feeling numbness. Uh, there was a burning on my skull. I, I just, I experienced what I call the full gamut of the most bizarre symptoms of COVID. And those did not start until a month later. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, it just, just, I'm really sorry that you suffered Thank that you. way. Thank you. And the way you describe the problem of getting care Mm -hmm. is, I think, probably one that long COVID sufferers that I've talked to also have detailed. So it's an additional level of, of stress that goes along with the illness that you're also somehow having to prove your case mm -hmm. um, that you're actually, that you're actually sick. Did you and have Scott, to? Yeah, go ahead. No, go, go and ahead. Scott, I, I'll even say this. And, and yes, many people that I've, I've met and I've talked to they have had to prove their their medical cases. We have we have become the doctors uh, of our own lives and and over our own health health at you know after after such a uh, harrowing um, experience with COVID. But I will say this to you is that there is nothing more degrading than going to a hospital where I expect to get care, uh, not only because I am not well um, and, and a patient, but because I have insurance and I've done everything I was supposed to do as a woman uh, to get the kind of care that I deserve um, and to be treated like the scum of the earth or like what I um, am experiencing doesn't matter. There's, a, there's another part of this too. As a black woman, I experienced racism and sexism at such a high level um, and with the assumption that I did not know how to describe or talk about my own body. Um, I was talked to as if I didn't matter, as if my symptoms didn't matter. Um, there was such microaggressive language used towards me. Um, I had doctors who wanted to talk to me more about their professional pedigree and where they went to school to try to prove how wrong I was as opposed to treating me and helping me. And I spent many times, even a week in the hospital, arguing with an emergency room doctor who did who refused to believe that COVID caused neurological symptoms, only for me to understand by talking to doctors to other long COVID patients that all of us, most of us who experience long COVID symptoms, which is now recognized as a chronic illness, most of all of us experience neurological symptoms. And so I can't describe to anybody what it's like to walk into a hospital and to be asked three to five times every time because i went to the hospital over 15 and 20 times in the course of the time that i was sick last year um being asked well, are you sure that you're not on recreational drugs mm. and so i can't make anybody understand 
how devastating that is to, to, to be a woman and a black woman trying to get care. And that's the way I was treated. And that's the reason why in June of uh, 2020, I had enough. I went home after one night in the hospital, still not being able to see. I don't even know how I was able to on some days between driving myself. It got to the point where I had to Uber because I really couldn't see. Mm. But I remember driving myself home in tears because once again, the hospital staff refused to 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 to. Um, to, um, to admit me. They knew that my blood pressure was up. They knew that um, I was complaining of body aches and pains and I couldn't lift. I couldn't reach. I couldn't do all of these things that they were asking me to do in these tests, but they would not admit me. And I went home and I thought each time I went to the hospital, I would say to myself and I would come home. I would think I would be at a cross between God, just let me die. <laughs> Just let me die because this is the worst pain, the worst experience I've ever had. But then every time I would come home and I would wake up and realize, OK, I'm still alive. I would say to myself, I would say, OK, so I would get more and more upset at the way I was treated. So in June, at the end of June, I talked to my best friend and I said, you know, I'm getting tired of this. Like either I'm going to die or I'm going to fight to live. Right. And so I fought to live. And that's when I decided that I don't care if I had to scream it from the mountaintop, Scott, that somebody was going to listen to me to take me seriously. And that was the scariest thing I've ever done. But it's also been the best thing I could ever do for myself and for my community. So what did you do at that point? Who did you find? Who did you turn to to begin to tell your story and also to try to get some um, you know, medical intervention uh, for practitioners who would listen to you and begin to try to make sense of your symptoms and get you some form of relief? Um, well, first of all, I reached out to those hospitals, you know, um, not being able to see out of my left eye. I don't even, to the, you know, thinking about it now, I don't even know how I was able to type out those long, detailed emails about my experience. But I did send um, emails to Johns Hopkins and to um, um, St. Agnes Hospital because I wanted them to know how I was being treated by their esteemed staff. And I wanted them to know what my experience was. So I sent those emails to, to those hospital administrations um, members first. And then when I didn't hear anything or when it didn't satisfy me, I reached out to Baltimore to the Baltimore City Council, um, uh, the members. I, I reached out to, to, um, to, to my own city councilmen and, and I reached out to the uh, city council leader at that time, who's now our mayor. And um, I reached out to anybody I could, I could get in touch with. I reached out to Maryland delegates because I said, this cannot go on. I, I just couldn't imagine that I was being turned away. And I kept thinking to myself, Scott, I said, well, if I'm being turned away, and I can articulate myself and I can tell you how I feel. I have, have been keeping track of my symptoms on my phone and reading them off and, and because I, I wanted to make sure that I was getting things right because my memory has started to fade. Um, I can't imagine what's happening to my students who may be coming to these same hospitals looking for care, who might not know how to tell these doctors 
oh, my chest is hurting or my body's aching or here's what's wrong with me. So when I started to speak out and reach out to those to those individuals in the city and, and these hospitals, I did so with my students in mind, thinking about them so they wouldn't have to experience it the same way that I did. And so um, not even um, a day or two later, um, the Maryland, some of those Maryland delegates and, um, you know, I have to shout out uh, uh, now he's the, the Baltimore City Council leader, uh, um, president, I'm sorry, Nick Mosby. Uh, he mm -hmm. reached out to me and said, what can I do to help you? Um, and so he he actually emailed Johns Hopkins and said, we need to uh, to get this this woman some help. And so from that point on, I also, you know, had to spend a lot of my savings um, to get a, a health advocate, somebody who could speak for me because I wasn't necessarily able to do so on my own mm. um, to, to be able to convey a lot of the medical terminology. So I had to hire somebody, sadly. Um, and so uh, with the medical advocate and, and Mr. Mosby, I was able to get the ball rolling. That's how I was able to schedule my cataract surgery so that I could I could get because they were telling me that that my eyes were dry. That's why I couldn't see. That's how I was able to get that cataract surgery scheduled. That's how I was able to get all of those appointments to be seen um, and to meet with different doctors and to to meet with another neurologist um, who was able to help me at least help treat some of the symptoms that I, I have, uh, the migraines and the uh, occipital neuralgia, which is the inflammation of the brain stem and the top of my, you know, the top of my spine and my neck and the back of my head. I mean, had I not said anything, I may not be here with you tonight. Yeah. And so I am convinced that what I did and what I said was the right thing to do. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to patient advocate, long COVID advocate, Shamir L. Smith today. And Shamir, I think going through that experience, and let me just let me just thank you for going through that in such detail thank you. Um, and reliving that, which I know can't be easy for you. So I do really appreciate and the power of your words um, is very clear. Um, you know, a lot of people at that moment would just convalesce, you know, mm -hmm. they'd find a quiet place and, and, and lay down for a while. Mm -hmm. Although, uh, you know, inability to, you know, if people lost their job, they may not have had the luxury to convalesce very long. This is something yeah. we're learning right now about the economic impact. And we'll turn, we'll turn to that in a minute, yeah. but you did the opposite. You became an activist. Mm -hmm. And um, among the many things that you've done, you testified before um, a House hearing, U.S. House of Representatives hearing on the long haul, mm -hmm. forging a path through the lingering effects of COVID-19, which was a bipartisan um, hearing that was led mm -hmm. by California Representative Anna Ishu. Mm -hmm. And I've asked you, uh, you very uh, gracefully uh, accepted the offer to read some of the testimony that you shared 
with the committee. And I'll also put up the link so that people can find that entire um, entire testimony. But I wonder, can we turn to that now? And, and I'll give you the screen and let you go ahead and read some of that. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to disappear from the picture here and let you take over and I'll come back to you in a few minutes. I am not much different than many of the people who have shared their experiences living with long COVID. I was denied testing the first two weeks of my symptoms. I was told over a dozen times that I never had COVID. I tested negative for the virus and its antibodies. The difference and challenge I face is that I am a black woman who carries the weight of other black women who have with different but no less traumatic conditions been left misdiagnosed, humiliated and frightened. Before March 2020, I can recall haphazardly listening to stories from black mothers, sisters, friends and cousins thinking my blue and white insurance card would absolve me from them all from intracranial hypertension to endometriosis, to cancer, to arthritis, to neurological diseases, these women would share with me tales of our country, leaving a trail of untreated and forgotten women in hospitals, uh, in hospital rooms and doctor's offices. Over the last year, I sadly learned that even with a respectable career as a middle school te English teacher, money in the bank and a giving heart, I am still a black woman in America who doesn't know enough words to convince doctors and medical staff to take my bout with long COVID seriously. I have become one of many of the black women I know. Even while doing everything right in a year, well now almost two, my life has become reminiscent of the little girl I tried to shed. I am once again poor on the verge of losing my health insurance. If I didn't have a loving family, I would be living in my car, now the only possession I truly own. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. And that, that testimony was for the special hearing, um, which focused on the long haul forging a path to the lingering effects of COVID-19, which was uh, led by Congresswoman Anna Ishu. So. What was the response to your testimony? Um, um, it, it garnered a, a very positive response. Um, I was I was honored to be asked. I didn't know how intense it would be. I didn't know that it would be an all day uh, event, um, but it was uh, it was truly a great opportunity for me to share my experience. I was honored to be the very first black woman with long COVID to share uh, my experience. And um, Congresswoman Eshoo, uh she was she, at the end of my testimony. Um, she she paused for a, a a while and she said wow and she she just she said that was amazing and she told me that i was very um she i, I can't remember i'm sorry i have word association and i it's hard for me to grasp words now with long covid but she just she just applauded me for uh for being honest and and being um very transparent and so I was very uh, glad to lead the charge. And what I also found in that conversation uh, with other Congress uh, members is that so many of them, uh, whether it was their family members or best friends or, uh, or employees, also dealt with long COVID. So these are issues now that are starting to affect so many of us. 
And so it is. it was my hope then and it still is my hope now that because it's starting to touch every fabric of our country, even our most esteemed politicians, that they will quickly act on making sure that there are resources and treatment opportunities and research opportunities uh, for uh, people with long COVID to receive. Um, what we do know is that long COVID in many ways uh, resembles um, some of um, some of um, our uh, other chronic conditions like um, ME and CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and other post-viral uh, illnesses. But I think that there has never been such a uh, wide volume of people who have been affected all at one time this way. And so I think that this, people are wondering, well, why is long COVID getting such attention? It's because it is starting to show up and affect so many different people at one time that we cannot ignore it. You know, it's not like a rare condition where you can kind of turn right. your back and say, well, because it doesn't happen to me, it's fine. Right. No, long COVID is, is, is touching. I know. I know so many people now with long COVID than I knew uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And that is saying a lot. And so we need to tackle this as soon as possible. Your testimony also, it sort of brings several things. There's an intersection there, which is a really important one, which is so mm -hmm. it's it's your own your own life experience, your own mm -hmm. experience of the of the illness. Mm -hmm. But then that intersects with your experience as an African American yep. who we know through your words, but also mm -hmm. also through statistics, if anybody yep. would care to consult them, that African Americans mm -hmm. face really disastrous health inequalities in the United States. But then also the discussion, and this is what you're talking about earlier, the discussion about um, black women and trust in the mm -hmm. medical system. Mm -hmm. And we've seen these stories. Um, you know, somebody like myself, I I can just read these stories. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have to talk with you, but I, I haven't experienced that. I've never had a doctor disbelieve mm -hmm. uh, when I told them that I had pain. Yeah. Or, or, and if I came in and said, you know, I don't feel well, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. Mm -hmm. um, in my experience in the medical system, that led to long and thorough searching mm -hmm. of many different options of what that of what that was. And and I don't want to. I'm not trying to impugn then all doctors or mm -hmm. sort of you know say sure. the medical profession is an evil profession. I mean, we're talking about something very specific here, yeah. which is a, a a train of mistrust based mm -hmm. in a based in inequality and racism, yeah. which yeah. then intersects with COVID. And that's, mm -hmm. to me, where your testimony sort of shines a light, as you said, where it had not been shined before quite this brightly. Yeah. And that's why. Um, and because of that intersectionality, I, I, I never fail, as my students and I would say in my classroom, to keep it real, to keep it 100, to tell the truth. Because I could have went to Congress and said all of these pretty things about every symptom I had and and and, and really just uh, let them know about every detail of my experience within, you know, at that time, a year and some months of my experience. But I wanted them to see me, not the makeup, not the nice haircut. I wanted them to see my experience. I wanted them to, 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 to be taken back to me growing up as a young girl uh, 
uh, in the ghetto, in the hood, you know, of Southeast Washington, D.C. I wanted them to know that I had worked my way uh, uh, to becoming an esteemed and award winning teacher. But I had gone back to that little girl because I had spent all my life savings. Nobody believed me. You know, and, and I was I was going through such a, a rough time. So I couldn't afford to spend those five minutes I had uh, talking uh, 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 about, you know, talking with frills and whatever. I needed to be able to let them know who I was and to and to let them know the intersectionality of that. And I, I have no regrets about that. And I think that's one of the. Um, one of the reasons why um, people have started to trust my voice, because I don't hide behind um, trying to look good for the media. I tell my truth and my experience because I want people to know that these are the experiences that are plaguing black women and black people with long COVID. Well, you certainly made the most of it. I have to say that. And 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 those are words that that needed to be heard and continue to need to be heard. I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, in terms of the long COVID community now, particularly Black women mm-hmm. being motivated to talk about their experiences, um, what's the state of that? Are more people coming out and, and sharing their experiences now? Yeah, and I am so proud of that, Scott. I I, I just was actually, um, you know, and uh, one of the things, one of the symptoms of long COVID, anybody will tell you, is in, 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 insomnia. And so I, I got uh, a, a bit of it last night and have actually sadly been up since 1 a.m. And so in the process of being up, I wrote some thank you cards to some beautiful black women that I have recently met um, in this struggle, in this fight, who have decided to, uh, to, to, to boldly tell their stories and who send me uh, direct messages on Facebook and Instagram to congratulate me, to, uh, to honor me, um, although I don't need that, and to thank me for uh, how I've raised my voice because they say that it is giving them the strength to do the same. And so um, people like Cynthia Adenig um, in Virginia and Brooke Keaton, you know, in um, Charlotte, North Carolina and Margot Gage, Dr. Margot Gage, who created the first uh, BIPOC long uh, COVID group for women in um, Texas. Uh, she's an epidemiologist. I, I, it, I'm astounded by their stories and the, the the other women who I can't name offhand who are telling their stories. And I think that um, I'm proud of that because I remember last April only being able to really listen to CNN and MSNBC as I was so sick I couldn't do anything else. And I was listening to the voices and and kind of watching the TV. And I kept saying, I'm so sick. I know I can't be the only black woman sick like this with COVID and long COVID. I wanted to see representation. I wanted to see other people who look like me. And finally, I can look after almost two years, I can look at newspaper articles and I can look at media uh, 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 outlets and, and interviews and I can see other black women, other brown women who are coming forward telling their stories. Um, you know, I, this is not just, and I'll say this continuously, um, it was painted initially, this condition as a white woman's condition. And that's all that I saw that was interviewed. And that's another reason why I had to speak out because I said, "Mm -mm, I need to be able to show people that this has, you know, it has a diverse face. And so what I'm proud of is that other women are telling their stories and um, other black women are telling their stories. 
And um, I'm, I'm so proud, so proud of them. And I, I just, that lets me know that this work will continue because sometimes as an advocate, we do get tired. And after almost two years of advocating, um, there are times when my voice gets weak. And so having other shoulders to, to rub, you know, to, to being able to rub on other shoulders and, and stand on other shoulders or whatever um, makes me feel good. And so I think that Black women are tired of historically how uh, our country has treated uh, many of our health uh, complexities, right? My best friend dealt with um, a neurological disease for years that nobody diagnosed and she was misdiagnosed, she wasn't believed. And it wasn't until in the last few years that she was able to get the treatment that she deserved, but she had to fight for that. And so I think that the, the, the increase of black women's voices with long COVID is simply because we got tired of being tired and we wanted to be seen as viable uh, 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 representatives with voices to, to speak about this condition. Just a reminder, I'm talking to Shamir L. Smith today mm -hmm. on COVID Calls, and you can read more about her work at her website, shamirladon.com. That's mm -hmm. C-H-I-M-E-R-E-L-A-D-A-W-N.com. And you read about her work there and her life story and also the congressional testimony that she shared and find out the issues that are important to her that we're talking about here today. Shamir, I want to talk about the economic impacts for a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about the health impacts of COVID and long COVID on you and on Americans and on black women. What about the, the job loss, the hard year last year, your own story? I assume you had to leave your, your job and yeah. I'm not sure you know, if you've been able to work since then. And so many long COVID sufferers have tried to reenter the workforce and then had to leave. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a, um, if there's any sort of financial precarity, you get in trouble real fast. Absolutely. I mean, I remember having ten to twelve thousand dollars that I would that I saved over the course of uh, a school year um, to live off of for the summer. That was my intention to live off of that money um, for the summer because I don't like I didn't want to work <laughs> as a as a summer school teacher. Um, and I had to spend that. I, I, I ended up having I lost all of it or I spent all of it uh, between having medicine delivered to me because I could not leave my house most of the time to go get medicine. Um, I spent that on when I was able to eat, um, buying food from, uh, you know, uh, grocery delivery spots. Um, I paid that in co-payments to doctors and procedures and, um, and, and different things. And I had to still pay my bills. I had to pay for my car note and my car insurance and this and this and this. And, um, I quickly, within probably three to four months, spent all of that money because I wasn't getting a paycheck because I had run out of leave. Um, I did not qualify for FMLA. And um, it wasn't until recently that I was able to qualify for some type of long-term disability uh, benefits. And so what I already see by talking to uh, quite a few long COVID patients now is that people are have already run out of their savings. They are already filing for unemployment. They are already uh, applying for Social Security, which we know can take anywhere up to two to six months to receive a decision. 
because it is such a great number of people who are who are now ill with long COVID, you can see how the, the workforce has been decimated by their absence. Um, I was making a pretty good salary as a five-year teacher in Baltimore City. Now I'm reduced to less than half of that and expected to pay the same amount to pay rent for car, for electricity, other utilities. Right. Um, a lot of us cannot work. People ask me all the time, Scott, do you think that you'll be able to go, go to work? Well, how can I work if I have a cognitive impairment? How can I work if, 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 if five out of seven days I have brain fog and migraines? I mean, I just can't imagine. And that's just not me. That's many of us. So I'm reading stories of people who just have to make the tough decision to walk away from jobs or reduce their hours, or because they are afraid of reinfection, um, they have to work from home again. And they just have to, some, sometimes because of how, um, how some jobs are set, they just have to quit. And so it is my fear that if we don't get a handle on how we are addressing the financial uh, and the medical impact of, of this condition, we are going to find ourselves in such an eco economic downturn because nobody's going to be able to work. If you if you have millions of people already affected by long COVID in this country who can't work, help us. Heaven help us. That's um, you know what you described also is the the work that you're that you are doing as a teacher mm -hmm. uh, is incredibly physically demanding and yeah. and mentally demanding, and you know I think you you know, you've shown a lot of, you've shown a lot of heart. I mean, in the mm -hmm. sense that, that in lots of ways, but in the sense that you, you want to go back to work and, and then be there for those students and then have to come disappear again. You want to be healthy. I want to be. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, 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 and as you described earlier, you're looking at old social media photos. You want to be back in that classroom. And I think exactly. that's, nobody wants to be out of work, especially at this time. So, and I think, I'm yeah. sorry. And, and no, I ahead. think that, you know, you know, um, when we think about economic, um, the economic aspect, what I what I also like, you know, let people know is that for many of us, um, we are the e financial ecosystem to our families and our communities, right? So for me, right. as a black woman, a single black woman, no children, um, it was my goal to become a principal of a Baltimore City public school which would have been paying anywhere from, I would say, just as an example, $120,000 plus. Mm -hmm. That Some of that money and income would have been going towards helping my mother retire comfortably as a 65-year-old woman. You take away the aspirations of that and the actuality of that, and I'm not able to help her in the same capacity that I had intended to and was before. You take me out of the classroom with mostly black students at an at a, at a in a um, urban community in Baltimore City. You impact those students greatly. Um, I have a niece that was born in July of this year. Auntie can't help her the same way I intended to because I simply don't have the money or the resources. So it's not just me, it's other people who have, you know, uh, who are in marriages or relationships with children 
who can't take care of their families and their homes the same because they simply cannot work. This isn't a matter, Scott, of us being lazy. It's simply because we do not have the physical, mental, or neurological capacity to work. Where is this headed? Are, are you uh, a person who's in favor of long COVID sufferers participating in health studies and clinical trials? I mean, it, it seems like we need, we're going to need a lot of research. I know there's some ongoing, but of course, it also demands long COVID sufferers to kind of step up and re-enter a medical system that you feel has already not listen to you. So that's a big ask, I think. It is a big ask, ask, and that's a that's a very good question. I love that you asked that question because I am all for long COVID patients, especially those in marginalized communities, um, being participants of research uh, and treatment studies. But I am all for that only if these studies are safe, if they are transparent if in some ways they can compensate the patients and um, truly if, if, if these research studies take into consideration how much long COVID patients and sufferers have endured uh, since March of 2020 during the first wave and how much we've moved the needle in almost two years. What I think sometimes these health organizations don't remember is that when doctors didn't, and like, like we said earlier, we are not here to discredit doctors. I still respect them. And I'm, I happen to have recently found a great one um, um, at Johns Hopkins. So I'm glad about that. Um, but back in March and April and May, people like Fiona Lowenstein and Karen Bashoff and Amy Watson, we're already in Margot Gage. We're already creating groups, support groups with people who were researching, who were creating surveys, who were asking questions, who were communing with each other. The, the term long COVID came about because we created it. And so if these health organizations want to engage us correctly, they have to truly include us. And I think a part of that would be relinquishing some of that control because nobody knows better how much we truly suffer than us. And I think some of the problem is that um, we still have some people who who want to uh, who want to over override our experience. And you can't do that when you're asking for engagement. So we're almost up on time in a discussion today with Shamir Smith, but um, that you know, just to to that point, I mean, you testified before Congress, mm -hmm. and you know, that's a political. You're entered entered into that political stage there in mm -hmm. that sense. What are you looking for from political leadership um, right now in Baltimore City, in Maryland, or in in the nation, or in the world? Sure. What kinds of things? should elected officials who are listening to this conversation, should they take away? What what can they be doing for you and with you right now? Absolutely. Um, I think that um, aside from Social Security, I know this might be too much to ask, but I, I, can, I, I feel like I can just say, you know, ask for what I want. <laughs> um, um, I think that there needs to be another financial resource or greater financial or governmental resource and resources and assistance for long COVID patients. Like I mentioned before, this is the largest group of people uh, that have been affected by any illness or con uh, condition at the same time. So 
speaking personally, um, we need I, I, I need greater uh, uh, more more money in my in my food stamps. Right. I need housing opportunities. I need uh, I need I need some temporary cash assistance. I need money to help me navigate this while Social Security is trying to figure out my case. That's number one. We, we have so many people who are hungry and homeless, as you mentioned um, in your reading at the top of the hour. Um, and so long COVID patients truly are suffering. I can't tell you how many I know who have GoFundMes every day because they're hungry. They don't have insurance. They don't have a home. They lost their home. So that's what we need. We need more government assistance and resources. The second thing that we need, we need to start reimagining the spaces in our urban communities um, and our communities, period, for uh, long COVID clinics. They, they, they can't just be found in hospitals and, 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 and these medical centers. They are places that we can be using to operate out of to educate our communities on long COVID churches, schools. Uh, abandoned buildings that we haven't used for years. They are because uh, long COVID treatment centers are uh, overwhelmed and overworked along with our hospitals. We need other places for people to get training and education and information and resources about um, long COVID. And the last thing is we need to be identifying the mental health uh, uh, issues that arise from this condition. Right. We have sadly, we have lost at least that I know of about 10 to 15 people because of suicide, because COVID does affect the brain. And so if we're if we are if we are not legitimizing the mental health struggle there, we will lose tons more of the of, of patients, because I know for myself, I had suicidal thoughts as well. And so. Mental health has to be a, a priority here, um, in addition to the fine, uh, financial and educational um, and the medical resources that we need. And we need, we have to have universal health care, health care that we all have access to. We can't continue to make cuts. We have to have health care that we all can use because what's going to happen is if we lose our jobs, we're going to be more dependent on government issued insurance like me. So. I have a lot more, but <laughs> those are the things I can think off the top of my head. Incredibly clear. If that's what comes off the top of your head, I wish I could. <laughs> I wish my Thank top you. of my head was quite that, quite that powerful. <laughs> but, um, but particularly interesting the, mm -hmm. to me, the idea of a long COVID clinic at the neighborhood level, which yeah. is, of course very much synchronizes with the, the way we need to probably be thinking about healthcare more generally in America mm -hmm. so that people yeah. Are not constantly having to go to the hospital for what can be handled should be handled at the extremely local level with care providers that they can build a relationship with it's the first time i've heard someone ad, uh, articulate that idea for long COVID. is that something that's in discussion in your community it is it is something that um i have i want to hear more about that yeah i've written about and actually i was just approached recently yeah. about um per, you know being one of the thought leaders and leaders of of um of, of that um of that idea, um, because it is something that I cannot do alone, but it is something that I'm very much interested interested in being the spearhead along with others um, in doing. Because I would love to see uh, some training happening at our schools, especially at our schools, because I was a teacher. So, yeah, I, I think it can happen. It, it, it may take some time, and it's going to take some willing and helping hands. But I believe it's going to happen, and it's possible. What's next for you, Shamir? 
Ah, uh, well, <laughs> a lot of rest as as the holidays um, as as the holidays unfold, Christmas unfolds. You know, hopefully some you know some time with um with a, you know a little bit of family. I've been taking a step back from 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 advocacy a little bit because I needed to kind of rest and restore and take care of my own mental health, my own business. Um, but I do see myself uh, continuing to consult with some health organizations, uh, continuing to publicly speak about my experience, to sharing my ideas uh, with with um, federal agencies. And so I look forward to doing more of that in the new year, but a little bit more, uh, I would say, responsibly, not trying to do everything, but doing a few great things. Well, I, I wish you rest and a, a good holiday season. I, I look forward too. to some time in the future. I want to see you in that principal's office. Uh, <laughs> and, and let me clarify, behind the desk. Of the behind principal, the desk, in, that's in, right. In the principal's <laughs> office. Yeah. Thank you so, thank you so what, much, Scott. I wish you I well, and I wish see. you a great holiday. And I'd love to be back on if you ever need me. Just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And we have a few more COVID Calls next week uh, before a break for the holiday. So those will be announced, and please do join me back for those. And I want to thank my guest, Shamir L. Smith, for sharing her experience today. And she is a patient advocate for long COVID sufferers and a board member of the group Body Politic. And you can catch her testimony before Congress um, and I'll also send that link out. Please do read that. Shamir, great to be with you. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank you. Stay Take healthy, care. everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.